welcome back to another episode of What the HR, an award-winning podcast. I'm Jesse Novi. And I'm Mike Toole. The What the HR podcast explores how to build people-centric businesses through modern practices and approaches. New episodes are released frequently, so don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss any episodes. We've got Kevin Mosier back to the podcast. It's been a while since we've had Kevin on. We have a lot of reasons to have him back. So thank you for being back, uh, Kevin, joining the What the HR podcast. Um, In the past, we've done some compliance updates with Kevin, but they've typically just been on one topic. And there's been a lot that has happened just within the last couple of weeks um, and a lot that's happened just in recent months that we feel is important to cover that impacts folks working with employers locally to um, Minnesota as well as outside of Minnesota. So what we're going to do with this format today is we're going to go through several uh, pertinent topics and we'll timestamp them in our show notes so that if there are some you're not interested um, in hearing about but others that you are, you can just um, timestamp right to your topic that you're interested in. So Kevin, thanks for being back. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Jess. Really appreciate it. There's so much to talk about today, right? There is. Um, We'll do as best as we can to be concise yet thorough, you know, to give people enough information, but we'll make sure as always to close the podcast out with where people can get in touch with you, Kevin, um, if they want to dive in deeper to any of these topics. Um, So I'm thinking let's go ahead and start with um, the most recent affirmative action law regarding um, college admissions. Yeah. So, yes, I'm going to try to be as concise as possible uh, through this podcast, try to work against my lawyer nature. Um, But jumping into the Supreme Court's decision. So the Supreme Court, just very generally, if you for those of you that haven't heard about it, um, ruled on the um, on college admissions with regard to affirmative um, with regard to using race as a criteria in determining college admissions. And the Supreme Court in a 6-3 decision ruled and said that using race as a factor for college admissions um, violates uh, the Constitution, the 14th Amendment. And so there is no real direct relationship between this court, the court's decision um, on on this, right? And so this is a, you know, this is, but it's a political issue as well. And so what hap- what's happened since is that a lot of politicians and a lot of advocates who advocate, uh, advocate against DEI initiatives in the workplace um, have taken this decision and are trying to expand upon it, right? Whether it's by by exerting pressure on on corporate governance or exerting you know exerting pressure on businesses on the business world, saying see what the pr- Supreme Court did to colleges. This this reasoning is going to apply to um, to the workplace as well. Um, that's not it's. It's a little bit of a leap. It, the The decision really has no direct impact. It's on a whole. Di- it's a, on a totally different law. I believe it's Title VI. Um, and whereas the workplace, when we look at when we look at DEI, which is based within Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, that's really an issue around you know workplace discrimination and retaliation based on you know race and 
and lots of other factors, but there's really no correlation between the two. But a lot of advocates and a lot of politicians are using this Supreme Court decision to say, you're next, right? You in the workplace, you're next. What you're doing with DEI initiatives and trying to diversify the workplace and be inclusive of people, that is that is uh, a form of discrimination because you are focusing on race through through a lot of your DEI initiatives and and programs and such. And so so a lot of these politicians have just used this as as a um a springboard. And it also, you know, it also gives a lot of employers who are not super fond of DEI or maybe they're just kind of on the fence or you know, they're just not they're not drinking the Kool-Aid on DEI. It gives them an absolute out to say this is we're not going to do this anymore. This is why we shouldn't be doing this anymore. The Supreme Court has pretty much said that we shouldn't be doing we shouldn't be doing any sort of um, you know race based anything. And so we're we're gonna we're gonna pull the DEI initiatives that that we've got going on. It it allows a lot of those leaders, corporate leaders, an exit plan, an exit strategy, and and I think that's what we're going to see. So. From a legal standpoint, no real correlation, but from a practical standpoint, from a conversational standpoint, we're going to have a conversation about the uh, efficacy of DEI, and um, and it's, you're probably going to see a lot of companies, a lot of leaders just stop, you know, stop the, the support for it. And they were probably on the fence anyway, not truly supporting it to begin with, it would be my guess in most situ- of those situations. So would your advice to any HR folks or I'm assuming most of your customers, Kevin, probably fall into HR, in-house legal counsel, mm-hmm. um, are reaching out to you on this particular topic, would you say don't be too concerned at this particular juncture, but it's probably a consultative topic with leaders if questions are coming up about it to say, this shouldn't yeah. change how we're thinking about our DEI initiatives that we currently have underway. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I if you have if you if you are a, a company that is legitimately you know trying to you know promote DEI, uh, you know there's a lot of different ways to do this, a lot of different programs, methods, all that sort of thing. If you're truly you know a proponent of that, and that's important for your culture and for your company. I would say just keep going forward. There's nothing in the Supreme Court decision that gives me pause on it. I certainly don't feel like there's um, a basis for like unlawful behavior uh, by continuing with with you know the standard type of DEI initiative. So yeah, I, I would keep going keep going forward. I just I do think we're going to just see a lot of this conversation from a lot of people where they're going to opine that DEI should be over. But again, they they mm-hmm. that was their opinion probably you know beforehand as well, right? It's not like everybody it, it's not like everybody in the world like 100% of HR people are on board with DEI. I'm sure there's a percentage that that just don't believe in it. Um and and those people now have a little bit a little bit of uh inertia behind them on this issue. Yeah. Okay. Well, I know that there's been some folks that have reached out to me and I'm I'm sure there are others, you know, since this ruling has come out that are feeling concerned or skittish or worried, fearful about what this might do, 
you know, to um, the work that a lot of workplaces have done in the DE&I space. So Mike and I will uh, maybe look for some other, you know, folks in the DE&I world, if you will, to come on and speak about this at a greater capacity. But given that it did come out recently and uh, people are talking about it, I've seen it on LinkedIn and other social media platforms, I felt like it was important to address during our yeah. our um, call today. So thanks, Kevin. Yeah. Yeah. No, no problem. Mike, you want to introduce the next one? Yeah. So the next one I want to talk about is the parental leave update. Yeah. <clears throat> so a, a lot, you know, the Minnesota legislature, for most of you who uh, I'm, I'm sure if you're in HR and you're listening to this, you are well, well uh, versed in understanding that the Minnesota legislature was quite busy um, this, this year. And so we'll, t- we're about to touch on a number of these topics I think that you want to talk about, Mike. But the um, the first one on the parental leave, you know, just really briefly, the parental the Minnesota parental leave law was changed for most larger employers, uh, and by larger I mean like more than 20, 20 having more than twenty employees. The effect of the change is not not probably going to be that that great. But the but here are the changes that came from the men, men, the Minnesota parental leave. First of all, it's now it now applies to all employers. So if you've got employees, you are covered, you are a covered employer by the Minnesota parental leave law, right? So whereas with like FMLA, we have a 50 employee trigger before you're a covered employer. And previously we had 21 or, uh, you know, more than 20 employees before you were a covered employer for the Minnesota parental leave. Now it's one. So now all employers are going to be covered by this. And and by this I mean, if you're not familiar, by this I mean um, the employee is entitled to up to 12 weeks of uh, unpaid leave following the birth, uh, the birth of a child, and of their child. And the other thing that's going to be really impactful for all employers in Minnesota is that historically, that's only applied for employees who have worked for you for at least a year and at least half time. And that's gone. So now you literally could hire somebody and they could work for you and they could work for you for a few months and then be entitled to up to 12 weeks off following, you know, uh, of this, of this uh, benefit. So we're going to see a lot more, a lot more eligibility from, from, especially from newer employees, you know, previously you could have said, no, we're not going to give, you know, you've only been here six months. We're not going to give you 12 weeks off. You could have previously said that to somebody, they wouldn't have been eligible, but now that employee is going to be, you know, all employees are going to be eligible day one to take this, this unpaid leave of absence up to 12 weeks where you have to hold their job and, and continue their group medical benefits um, during their absence. So big changes, uh, in 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 that regard, but again, that's just one of them. There's so so much this year. All right, so Kevin, the next one we wanted to chat with you about today is the break time for expressing milk. Yeah, and that one, <clears throat> similar to the parental to the parental leave law, it's now applicable to all employers in the state of Minnesota. Um, so. And then um, the other thing is like a year ago, and we've probably talked about this. I'm sure we talked about this last year on the, on the podcast, but last in 2022, the Minnesota legislature made it, um, made it paid time and (laughs) excuse me. And um, this year they further gave, gave um, 
employees who are who are expressing milk um, greater um, protections. So they, you know, made it really clear like you can't discipline, you can't discharge, you can't threaten or intimidate employees, you know, try to like prevent them somehow from not taking these paid breaks. <clears throat> so employees who are expressing milk can now take as much time off as they want to for this purpose during the workday. There is limited a limited ability for an employer to say that you know there's some sort of undue hardship, but that's really just a pretty high burden. Um, it'd have to be pretty unique, uh, pretty unique set of circumstances, I would think, before an employer would would meet that burden. Because certainly the public policy behind this law is is to entitle um, you know your your employees who are expressing milk time off during the day for this for this purpose. You know, with this law and then some other laws, they they did put in a notice requirement. So a lot of our employee handbooks, if you haven't updated your employee handbook or if you're not in the process of updating your employee handbook, um, the Minnesota legislature pretty much forced you to update your employee handbook and your policies. So, you know, this law and um, the parental leave law needs to be updated, as does the um, the wage payment notification law. There's just a number of laws that that need to be updated if you have <clears throat> employee handbooks you need to put a lot of these employees on notice of their rights and response uh, their rights uh that they have under these laws very good um next up we got uh cannabis which is now legal starting august 1st uh i'm assuming that people will be wondering how this impacts their workforce you yeah. know, I, I'm I'm certainly curious to hear like can things certain things be enforced on private property? Are there certain industries that are treated differently? You know, whether it's a, a medical worker or child chair, things like that. Yeah. So this is it's a new world, right, for Minnesota with regard to recreational um, marijuana, recreational cannabis. So just to start out, we've got two different things that are that are at play here when we talk about when we talk about cannabis. We, one, we have drug-free workplace policies. Your drug-free workplace policy really probably doesn't need to substantively change. Not, you know, obviously I'd have to look at it to know if it needs to be changed, but the idea around a drug-free workplace policy is, hey, prohibition, you can't uh, sell, have on our property, have in our cars, have during the working hours. You can't have drugs or alcohol on our property, on our premise for any purpose, right? And and that was fine even, you know, even with medical cannabis. Um, you know, even with medical cannabis, if somebody's got a prescription, you can still prohibit them from taking it during the work, during the work working day. Um, so now that hasn't changed. So that doesn't change with with recreational marijuana. So we, you know, we still have property rights as employers. So we still have the property right to be able to prohibit employees from having it on our property, in our cars, you know, during work hours, that sort of thing, or from imbibing uh, during during that time as well, though, I guess if you were to imbibe, you'd probably have to have physical possession of it. Where we get into some complexities is around testing. And, you know, first of all, Minnesota doesn't require that employers test. Now, if you've got DOT under the, you know, Federal Motor Carrier Act, that's a different thing. But just as a state, just as a general state rule, we don't have to test employees for drug or, drugs or alcohol. And what this law does on the HR testing side is it says, 
under a lot of circumstances, it says that cannabis and all the derivatives of cannabis, cannabis isn't a drug. So we therefore cannot test it in certain circumstances. Now, there are some exceptions to that. And one of the exceptions, now there are some industry exceptions, but then one of the major exceptions that's going to be applicable for most employers that are doing testing is if they're in a safety-sensitive position. So if you're in a safety-sensitive position, can you still test for um, for cannabis if uh, the employee is in a safety-sensitive, if you meet the other criteria like reasonable suspicion, which is specifically d- defined under Minnesota law, then, then yes, you then as long as you meet these other criteria and you're in a safety sensitive position, you can. But can you, if it's a, if somebody gets in an accident and they're not in a safety sensitive position, can you test them for cannabis? No, you you can't you can't do that anymore. So, um, and then similarly on the on the pre-employment side, I think what we're going to ultimately have, and I think this has been in the works for years now, anyway, especially for national employers, where they've encountered these sorts of recreational marijuana uh, laws in other states or and or they're just having general recruiting problems uh, in in for doing pre-employment testing, I think a lot of employers are going to just get rid of cannabis on the schedule of of um, you know chemicals, drugs, whatever you want to call it that are being tested for. In a tight labor in a tight um, labor force, you're just losing in a lot of industries, a lot of locations, you're just losing a lot of people uh, who are potential applicants, you know, maybe potentially good employees because they're either not going to apply, they don't want to take the test because they do marijuana, um, you know, in their in their free time. The other thing, so I think a lot of companies are going to just get rid of cannabis testing altogether. But can you continue to do it? Yes, under limited circumstances. The other thing that employers need to watch out for, and this has been on the books for a long, long time, is you cannot, it's a little different than alcohol in that there's not as much stigma with alcohol. So for the most part, employers don't go and try to, you know, discipline or fire somebody because they were they were drinking, you know, Miller Lite uh, over, over the weekend. But if it, this law also, because cannabis is now legal in Minnesota as of a couple of days ago, you can't go and take an adverse action against an employee because they smoke on their free time, right? You can prohibit it at work, absolutely, but you can't you can't say, I just, you know, I've got something, I just don't believe, you know, I've got a moral issue or whatever it is with smoking pot and uh, and I don't like it. And so, and I know you're a pot smoker, you've been talking about it, so I'm gonna fire you or I'm gonna demote you. I don't think managers should be smoking pot you know, outside work. So I just don't think that's managerial. So I'm going to demote you. You can't do that. It's now a lawful product. And there's a lawful in Minnesota, like other states, another number of other states have has a lawful product use uh, law where you can't, you can't, you know, discipline or adversely impact somebody's employment because of their use of lawful products. Now, now marijuana is one of them. Cannabis is one of them. You can, you know, if somebody's doing heroin, go for it. Uh, or, you know, meth or something like that. That's not lawful. But cannabis is now, just like alcohol, just like, I don't know, toothpaste or bubble gum or whatever it is. It's it's now lawful in the state <laughs> of Minnesota. So we can't, we, we, we shouldn't be taking adverse actions against employees because of their lawful use of it. What about at work-related events? You know, you talked about, like, alcohol has become kind of standard. People are drinking it in the office sometimes. Um, at these events, whether it's in the office or outside of the office, if 
you know, everybody or a lot of people are engaged in like drinking and maybe one person or two people decide to engage in um, smoking pot because it's a work event. Are there any differences in those rules or is alcohol and marijuana like the exact same thing now? It's well, it is the exact same thing I, um, from a, from like it being lawful. Yeah. Um, outside, you know, for a, a lawful product. I'm sure cities and and municipalities are going to start restricting the use, right, of of marijuana, just like they restrict the use in a lot of places. You can't, you know, walk around with a beer in your hand. But mm. when we talk about company events, what I would probably recommend is if you if you do those sorts of company events, what a lot of company events is you'll say in the policy where you prohibit, you know, drugs and alcohol from being on, you know, at a, you know, during work time or being on the property, a lot of policies that I'll write, I will specifically exclude reasonable consumption of alcohol during a a workplace, a work-related event. And so that normally we just do that with alcohol. Could you also say alcohol or marijuana? I guess. I I don't know how many companies are going to want to do that, but could you do that? Yeah, but it is, it is relatively common at least in my practice, to to carve out limited use of alcohol during a workplace function. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And I just want to clarify too, Kevin, because this is a Minnesota state law. If if um you're a Minnesota-based corporation, but you're hiring people outside of Minnesota and they are in a state where cannabis is not legal, they can still follow previous drug testing laws if that's a part of their current policy yeah yeah as a general rule we look to the state where the employee is working or if it's a remote from a remote work from home situation we look we we call that there we consider that to be their workplace for for state law purposes um so yes so if you're if you're talking about somebody in like kansas or something like that you would look at the kansas rules rules on this and not apply the minnesota rule Yep. Okay. Did you have anything else on that one, Mike? No. Or Kevin? Okay. All right. I think we're going to transition into paid sick and safe leave. Yeah. Yeah. It's the big one Um, for this year anyway. uh, So, so Minnesota uh, basically made the Minneapolis, Duluth, Bloomington, St. Paul uh, paid, paid sick and safe time ordinances made it statewide and and then it made it more favorable made it worse for employers more favorable for employees so in a general this takes effect january 1 uh 2024 so generally speaking employees now uh, starting january 1 are going to be entitled to earn all employees doesn't have to be full-time you know even if you're working five hours five hours a, a week or something like that you start day one earning paid paid leave and the paid leave can be used for a specific purpose for for sick and safe related related reasons for the employee or their family member and the definition of a family member is incredibly broad and and slightly strange also to me but in any event it's this like broad stroke of if you need time off for sickness or safety reasons could be like a school shutdown there's a lot of reasons right school shutdown or you know health related reasons or to seek like court orders like restraining orders that sort of thing for themselves or others you start earning paid time off toward this um toward being able to use it now 
in in Minnesota, just like in Minneapolis and St. Paul, um, in Minnesota now for everybody in the state, and doesn't matter how big your how many employees you have, you are going to start earning. You there are two ways to do three ways to do this, but two primary. So two three ways to do this. One, you could have the employee start to earn at a rate of one hour of paid sick leave for every thirty hours of work. Two, you could drop in. 80 hours at the front end and just say, boom, 80 hours, you have 80 hours to use over the next year. And then they get a new 80 hours at the, at the end of the next year or three, you could drop in 48 hours and say, you've got 48 hours to use by the end of the year. And if you don't use it all, we're going to pay you out the difference. So any unused portion of that 48 hours, we're going to pay you, we're going to pay you the unused amount. So if you do this January one, then um, you know December 31st, you would you would basically pay out the unused portion if you do the 48 hour lump sum. A lot of employers are going to be looking at this and be like, well, 80 hours is a lot for a part time employee. So you could have multiple different policies on this depending on uh, the type of employee. If it's like a, a part time employee, a part time employees, you classify people as part time employees. You might do the accrual method where you're giving them one hour for every thirty hours of work. If you're if you've got full time employees, you just say, hey, maybe here's here's eighty hours. Now the other thing for a lot of employers to think about is having a bucket because most employers give vacation time, right? So if they don't do PTO, they give like vacation and maybe sick leave or maybe just vacation. And they say, you know, go figure it out on sick leave. But employers probably, I think, will start looking at just if they haven't already start looking at going to a total PTO plan where just everything's lumped in together. And so we've got, you know, it's vacation. I don't care why you take it. Here's your 80 hours. Go take it for sick and safe reasons. Take it use it to go to see um, the Grand Tetons. I, I don't really care. Um, we're, I'm just going to give you 80 hours or I don't really care. I'm going to let you accrue one hour for every 30 hours of work. And I think moving to a PTO plan makes a lot of sense, uh, particularly for employers that don't pay unused PTO or unused vacation leave upon termination of employment. If you pay, if you've decided to pay it, then you might be accruing a, a, a large burden um, to pay people. But uh, if, you've, if you've got the policy and you say, like, we don't pay out PTO upon termination of employment, I think going to a PTO plan makes a lot of sense. But there's a, a lot of nuances with all this. But anyway, five-minute explanation of what the paid <laughs> sick and safe time law is. It's, that's a total game changer. Uh, for most employers, you know, a lot of employers give give PTO, give paid time off of some matter to full time employees. Like I think that's just uh, competitively, I think most employers need to give that. But to give it to it's the part time employees and also a lot of industries, hospitality in particular, you know, and then some some other um, you know industries where you've got more uh, you know employees who are um, just not you know they're more I don't want to say transient, but they're just. They're they're more seasonal type of employees, though you know they're going to be earning PTO. They're going to be earning sick, you know, paid sick and safe leave. And so a lot of employers in those industries, in particular, who aren't accustomed to giving paid time off, are going to you know they're going to have to start doing that starting January one. Mm -hmm. So even for those employers, Kevin, that are offering PTO plans today in the state of Minnesota. 
that are encompass all of the things, Grand Tetons trips and um, being sick, are they going to have to potentially increase the amount of PTO hours that are being accrued, it sounds like, based on this law? No. So no, um, probably not as long as they're doing. So the minimum, so you have to follow one of those three methods, right? But the minimum um, you have to do is one hour for every 30 hours of work. You can cap it at 48 hours a year. If you do the accrual, you can cap it at 80 hours total and you have to allow carryover until they hit that, that cap. So you have to figure out which of these three methods you're using but if you're a you know a larger employer and you're giving like two weeks to all employees or three weeks, you're not going to have to raise raise the bar. The bar the bar is either one hour for every thirty hours of work, capping it. You could cap it at forty eight hours or eighty hours drop in. And so if you're doing fifty hours of drop in, yeah, you're gonna have to raise the bar. But if you're doing like ninety hours of drop in, that's fine. You're 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 above eighty. So yeah. So you're you know you're good. Okay. So to your point, it really is the the greatest impact is going to be with those part-time employees for, for I even, think, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And smaller employers and, and certain industry employers who aren't offering paid, paid leave. It's just not, you know, it's not something they've, they've done. We've got, you know, in the twin cities, we've had to do that, right? This has been a thing for the last, for several years since Minneapolis and St. Paul did it. it but now we're, you know, we're, we're everywhere in Minnesota. It's outstate now. So, so all, you know, your small businesses that have, you know, five, 10, 15 employees in Bemidji or Brainerd or wherever, they're now going to have to start offering this, this paid, paid leave benefit um, to all, to all employees. And a lot of those smaller businesses aren't accustomed to doing that. Mm-hmm. So the three options, there's the accrual where I'm getting a little confused is the option two and three. So option two is you have 48 hours. Uh, if they don't hit that, you have to pay it out. Yeah. And if for the 80 hours, if they were to leave, you don't have to pay that out. Well, you, so it, under in Minnesota, you don't have to pay out accrued PTO upon termination of employment. But if you're not going to do the drop in at 80 hours, mm-hmm you can do a lesser drop-in at 48 hours. and But the difference between the two is if you do the lesser drop-in at 48 hours, you have to pay any unused. Like if I'm, if I'm okay. just like, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to take any paid time off, right? I'm, I'm super healthy and I'm not going to the Grand Tetons this year. And I have a full 48 hours on December 31st at the end of the benefit year. My company has to pay that out to me. Got it. If they do the 80 hours, and I'm still like, nope, no Grand Tetons, no sickness, no nothing. And I've got 80 hours at the end of the year on December 31st. It goes away. It's gone. I don't get paid out. Mm-hmm. I did not game the system very well. I should have gone back to high school or college. Um, I'm not a typical <laughs> gaming employee. Um, I screwed up. I should have taken my 80 hours. So the the benefit is the nice thing for the employers is that if at the 48 hours, they can have less time on their books, they can meet the minimum requirements for, for the law. But the downside for the employers is if the employees just don't take any of that time off, they get, you have to pay it out at the end of, at the end of the year. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Jesse, you have anything else on that topic? Well, I was just going to say the benefit, though, of wrapping it under PTO versus um, 
specifying it as sick or safe leave under a policy is that an employee is probably more more likely, I'm making a very generalized statement here, to take time off for a vacation, hang out with family, do things with their kids, then maybe get sick. And so if it's falling under that PTO bucket, perhaps it's more likely to get used and not have to be paid out than if it was being used as a separate bucket that can only be used for sick and safe leave. Am I thinking about that correctly, Kevin? I think so. The other the other thing I think about <clears throat> with the benefit of wrapping it into PTO is it's just hard to manage. And then you know, think right. of all the time that all, all the uh, the time that HR spends chasing after people to figure out like why they were, you know, why they were off. And it's not to say that, you know, you still could, if somebody says, Hey, I need, you know, I've got a foreseeable medical thing and I'm going to take some time off. You can, you can still, there's some, you know, there's some rules around this with the new law, but you can still ask for documentation. But when you do a generalized PTO, you just don't, I'm not saying you don't care as much right? Like, okay, you're sick. I don't care. You're going to the Grand Tetons. You let your manager know you followed the, you know, notification procedures. Great. But you're not like, you're not really. Yeah. And I always think about it. Like when I was a kid, um, I was, I've mentioned this a few times on webinars before. So fortunately I don't think my dad listens to these webinars that I do, but, um, <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, like eight, nine years old and, uh, you know, of course I'm at, you know, a latchkey kid totally from the 80s and, you know, sitting at home by myself in small town, he would, he would be like, okay, I'm going fishing today. If my employer calls, <laughs> tell him I'm, I'm too sick to come to the phone. Right. <laughs> it's because he was using his, he was using his sick leave bucket. Yep. You know, they had vacation, they had sick leave. And so I was like, you know, eight or nine years old covering for my father, who's, uh, you know, who's out fishing or, or doing whatever. And, um, <laughs> that's, that's so good. You, you know, HR people have way, you know, much more important things to do with their time than, than police. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, you know, if somebody just stops coming in or whatever, it's a different situation. You can, you can manage that, but, but in most situations, you know, you just don't need to spend so much time managing it. An overall PTO bucket is just, it's just easier. I think there's an episode of The Office on that, right? Um, is there? Oh. Who is the accountant? Oscar. Oscar calls in sick and Michael thinks that he's just playing hooky or whatever. And so Dwight has to follow him around all day to find out if he's actually sick. Turns out he actually wasn't sick. So that was pretty funny. Surprise. Um, Surprise. Yeah. yeah. No, that's exactly that's exactly it. We have in HR, we just have better things to do. Awesome. Um, I think that was a really good overview. Are you good on that, Jess? Cool. Uh, so the next topic is the captive meeting law. And that's Minnesota yeah. only, right? Minnesota only, though there are other, this is becoming a national, it's, I want to say becoming, it's not like it just became a national issue. Um, the, but there are a number of states that are looking at this, that are passing rules on this. Minnesota is just, you know, one of the most recent, recent ones. Um, but in short, Minnesota employers cannot force employees to go to meetings to talk about religious or political issues. So employees now have a right to say no. Um, you can you can make it voluntary. That's that's fine. But but you can't make it. You can't force people to come and hear about your company's political or religious 
views or to, you know, drum up support for some sort of advocacy, you know, one way or one way or another. And so you can make it voluntary, but you can't force it. And if somebody doesn't, you know, refuses to go, you can't, you know, retaliate and discipline, you know, them because of their refusal to come and listen. I don't know how many. Normally, captive meeting rules are something we we talk about with regard to union situations and camp union campaigns. It, but I I don't know the world we live in and everything. And so, like, always a political election season. It seems I I guess there are probably companies out there that that you know try to talk their employees into voting one way or donating or whatever. I'm sure that probably happens, and that's probably why these laws are being passed around the country, including so, Minnesota. So um, w- what happens if you have, let's call, call it an all-hands meeting, where you are required to attend, but there's different agenda items within that meeting, and one of them turns that way. You know, it kind of, it maybe, maybe it's not said that this is the the agenda item, but, you know, maybe there's time spent on some sort of political or religious agenda. How does that you know, is does that employee then? Like, is there? Do you know what I'm asking there? Is there risk there in having any of that within a re- required meeting, even though it's not that's not the purpose of the meeting? I, yeah, it's. I mean, I hate this is a brand new law, and you know, we'll get clarification as these scenarios get tested by the by the courts. Um, I would just here's what I would say to that: This isn't. It's not best practice. Right. If you're if you're going to if you're going to have a meeting and it kind of devolves into that sort of thing, um, you know, not punishing employees who walk out of the of the meeting at that point would probably be a good a good idea. The employers who probably are having those meetings aren't probably going to say, well, we're now going to have a voluntary discussion about this political or religious topic. They're probably not sophisticated enough to to say something like that. Um, or knowledgeable enough about this rule, I would just say, you know, the that that it it sounds it sounds like it could be risky, and and I'm sure there are nuances and facts, and again, we'll see court cases on on all of this, but um, yeah. as a general rule, employers should familiarize themselves with these captive meeting, uh, this new captive meeting law, and um, and you know, if they are going to have these conversations. Make it clear that they're that they're voluntary and there's no repercussions for people for yeah. you know not attending. But this doesn't so because those conversations could like can be had at a company, right? At a private company, they can have those meetings. Now you can't require people. I guess that's what I'm trying to figure out is and I'm looking at it from like an employee perspective, not an employer, but like an employee who's looking for a lawsuit now understands that, Hey, this captive meeting law means that you can't require me to attend it, require me to attend a meeting about these items, but you required me. I'm, I'm required in the invite and you brought up these items. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, Just throwing out example. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'd have to, I, I, you know, I don't know where the line is. Mike. Yeah, I mean, okay. I, I, fair enough. We don't, we, this is a brand new law. I mean, it literally was just, just a few weeks ago. Yeah. I don't know where the where the line is. Um, this is where court cases come up to figure out where the line is and where how the courts interpret this. I would just say if I'm the employer, that I would try to make it as clear as possible to take risk off the table. If you yeah. don't 
care about risk, then go ahead and talk about everything during an all hands meeting that's mandatory and just know that you might be playing with fire a little bit under this under this law. And then as far as from the employee perspective, I I rarely I rarely try to go down that path from the yeah. employee perspective. And I, <laughs> I I have a I I I am so all all encompassed in the employer perspective on these things that uh, yeah. I don't know if I have enough bandwidth to uh, to think about it from the employee <laughs> perspective on how to sue employers. So. Yeah, all good. That one just are, there seems a little bit of gray area on that one. Are any organizations like religious based organizations, as an example, exempt here? Well, I think you know what that's a really good question, Jess. I suspect there that that there there is. I I do not remember um, mm-hmm. uh, on that. I I could take a look at the law. It it. It would surprise me very much if if you're a religious or you're a faith-based organization or a political organization, mm-hmm. um, advocacy organization. It seems to me like you would be able to have these conversations. It would be, you know, I I would be very surprised if that were that were not an exception under these sort of captive. I don't think that's the purpose of mm-hmm. this law, right? I think the purpose is to for non-faith-based, non-non-political um, advocacy organizations. The the idea is to stop. You know, to stop that single owner, you know, from getting up and saying, hey, I, this is my political candidate. Like, I want you all to donate. I want you all to vote this way. I think that's that's the intent behind yeah. behind this. Or we're going to mm-hmm. force everybody to come to a prayer session, which is there are all there are already, you know, cases and issues with with that under um, under the Human Rights Act and Title seven. But but I think it's really clear now, like, you know, you really can't certainly under this law too, you, you know, you shouldn't be having mandatory prayer sessions. Yep. Okay. All right. Well, I know we're getting close to our time here. We'll wrap it up with our last one, which is regarding pay history law. Mm. Yeah. So start, um, so be coming up here that you cannot, Minnesota's just joined a couple dozen States basically on this, on this issue. And so, um, you cannot ask, uh, applicants, candidates for a job, you cannot ask them um, what their their wage history is. You know, what did you make at your last job? What have you made? Give me, you know, it's a form of the reason behind this. We've, we've probably talked about this on other podcasts, but the reasoning behind this is that on these pay history and wage transparency, which is a different issue that we're seeing in, um, in a few locations around the country, um, on the, <clears throat> is that the more we are requiring to know about somebody's past wages, that's a way of wage suppression, which more often than not is going to directly impact negatively uh, female uh, candidates because of because of the, you know, around how females just don't make as much in the workplace at comparable jobs and comparable experience and everything as their male counterparts. And so if we ask somebody for their wage history, we're just looking to perpetuate what might have already been a discriminatory pay practice at previous employers. And I'm sure most HR people would be like, no, no, we, we just want to pay somebody as little as possible. And we don't want to give them like a 30% raise um, if we can give them a 20% raise, right? If we can, if I can get you for less, I'm going to. Uh, I get that. I totally get that point. But we, we do have a systemic problem with um with wage pay, with wage history for females and that's what this law is essentially trying to 
um, correct or you know prevent the perpetuation of that wage payment um, you know differential between males and females. Is so is that based on the headquarters of the company or the person you're hiring? So does that follow the the person or the actual company? I'm curious. Yeah, no, it's the person. It's where the person's going to be working. So okay. if they're working here in Minnesota, that would be. And I would just say this: like there are a couple dozen states that have this have this rule. I think most companies, especially most national companies, are getting away from asking about wage history. I don't i i think I think words out. This is just not it's not helpful. It's not getting anybody, especially in a tight labor market. Um, it, it's just bad for recruitment. I think most companies are that have any sort of level of sophistication with HR or certainly our national are getting away from asking about pay history. The bigger step, which is, you know, is Minnesota in the future going to ask for wage transparency, which is what we've like, you know, made big news in New York City, which is, and and this is a rule in California too, is having to put wage ranges on the advertisement, right? Yeah. So if you advertise in the you know new, newspaper or online, and you have to say the wage range for this job is X to X, that's the bigger, more controversial thing than I think pay history. We're not there yet in Minnesota, um, but but a few jurisdictions have have looked uh, and adopted that practice. And I think that that is where we're going to start to see a lot more movement in Minnesota and other states on wage transparency, because that really gets to, you know, because when you ask, ultimately you can ask somebody, like even under the new Minnesota law, you can ask them like how much they want to be paid. Like, you know, how much do you want to get? How much are you looking for? You can ask that question. Mm -hmm. But if there's wage transparency and the job already lists that the way the payment is this to this, well, you can still ask them, but they've already got that information from you. And most employers try to hide that information, but I think those days are are waning where we're going to be able to hide that information. Well, we've already seen some job boards like Indeed, as an example, make a very bold statement. I wouldn't say bold. I would just say like with the Times statement about uh, pay transparency. I'm sure a lot of people listening are aware. If you're not aware, um, Indeed has asked employers to post the ranges for their roles on Indeed. If you are not there yet as an organization, um, or maybe you don't operate in states where you've kind of been asked or forced to do that yet, and you're just not ready to start sharing that information, then Indeed takes a um, calculation, like an estimate on what that role would technically be paid for like market pricing for that position and they will post the market price range based on the location and the job responsibilities so that employees or candidates um, better stated as candidates can have an understanding of competitively what that role makes as they're they're negotiating their salary range for that particular position yeah this is going to be national i mean most employers are going to be doing this within five years yeah. It, it, you know, it's like nails on chalkboard <clears throat> when the idea first started coming out. But you've got New York, you've got California, you've got bigger, you know, bigger employer jurisdictions that are looking at this. Minnesota will probably adopt something like this next year. Um, Illinois is going to look, Illinois is doing it in 2025. It, it's, this is a, an issue that's going to be widely adopted uh, in a relatively short period of time. Yeah, I agree with you. Most of the organizations I've worked for in recent years have already just 
moved away from asking about pay history and have just, to your point, Kevin, simply asked the question, like, what are your salary requirements? And then stating whether or not those salary requirements fit in with the target salary for that position. Um, And I just think that in addition to pay equity, um, it just opens up a much more it puts both people on the same playing field when it comes to negotiating compensation than the way that it has been historically. Agreed. So thank you so much. Uh, We covered a lot um, in an hour. I know um, a lot of our listeners, Kevin, are going to likely have follow-up questions on this, especially for some of the laws that are kind of hot off the press, if you will. So um, because it has been a while um, since you've been on the pod, if you could share with our listeners on where they can connect with you. Yeah, <laughs> excuse me. You're welcome to, um, anybody's welcome to call me or shoot me an email. Um, my phone number is 651-389-5007. They can find me at thompsonco.com. Thompson with a P, C, uh, co with a C-O-E. And um, <clears throat> and my email is kmosher, M-O-S-H-E-R, at thompsonco.com. Happy to to talk to anybody. And if anybody's interested in my um my subscription-based program, um, you know, happy to talk about membership and, and helping you out in any way. All right. Well, thanks again, Kevin. Always great to have you. Thank you for listening to this episode of What the HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you're listening through now. If you enjoyed the podcast, do us a favor and share with your network, your boss, or your CEO help us get this podcast in front of anyone who wants to know what HR looks like when done well. Also, if you have any questions for show topics or people you'd like us to interview, please email Mike and I at podcast at tcsherm.org. That's podcast at tcsherm.org. If you want to find out more about Twin City Sherm or our upcoming events, please visit our website at tcsherm.org. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And finally, if you're not already a member of Twin City Sherm, please use code WHATTHR at checkout to receive $20 off your membership. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.